podcast is brought to you by Get ready for the bold, juicy flavor of the Aloha Burger at Big Kahuna Burger. We buy a flame-grilled 100% Kahuna beef with zesty pineapple slices, crisp lettuce, ripe red tomato, and our signature Kahuna sauce on a freshly baked bun. One bite of a Big Kahuna Burger, and you'll think, Mmm, that is a tasty burger. And now for a limited time, get a free order of coconut shrimp with any combo meal purchase, only at participating Big Kahuna Burgers. At Big Kahuna, we do burgers right. Burgers so tasty, they're down no freaking might. So come on in to Big Kahuna. Because once you taste our burgers, you wish you'd come in sooner. Big Kahuna Burger, looking of Highway 61. Hawaiian shirts, optional. I saw some shit this morning made me think twice. See, now I'm thinking, maybe it means you're the evil man, and I'm the righteous man. And Mr. Nine Millimeter here, he's the shepherd protecting my righteous ass in the valley of darkness. Or it could mean... You're the righteous man, and I'm the shepherd. And it's the world that's evil and selfish. Now, I'd like that. But that shit ain't the truth. The truth is, you're the weak. And I'm the tyranny of evil men. But I'm trying, Ringo. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Welcome all you glorious bastards to another episode of Character Study, the new season three monthly series dedicated to exploring the psychological makeup, motivations, and complexities of the characters that reside in the world of Pulp Fiction. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and on this month's episode, we'll be focusing our examination on the Bible verse spouting, porcating hitman, Jules Winfield, to see what makes him tick. Joining me on this exploration is the co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club, Mr. Devon Taylor. Welcome back, Mr. Taylor, and may Tarantino be with you always. Um, and be with you as well, Reverend, uh, on this glorious Sunday that we're recording on. Sundays are for Tarantino and football. Yes, and we're recording on the last day of 2023. Although when people listen to this, you're midway, we're midway through fucking February. So kind of odd that we're recording on our last day, and we're, we're both hoping that uh, when we get to 2024, things are going to be okay by the time they hear this. But who knows? Who freaking knows here? Who knows? We, we, we also won't know if uh, if your boy uh, Baker Mayfield's going to take home a comeback player of the year, possibly. <laughs> well, who knows? I, yeah, no, by this time, the Super Bowl's already played. Actually, exactly. this, this might drop the weekend over after the Super Bowl. So you ride the highs when they're high, and you the lows when they're low. And, uh, you know, look, it's not Tom Brady, but this year we would have had one extra win more than we did when we had Tom Brady last year for his final year. So there is just, I guess, a little glimmer of hope, but mediocrity is still mediocrity. Yep, mediocrity <laughs> is still mediocrity. Now, you will be joining me three total times this season, which is the most. We had you on two the first season. You are on once last year, and this year you have pulled the lucky bingo card to be on three times. Besides this, you will be on in two months from now, in April, when... 
You are on the Pulp Reflections episode where we're going to analyze the unique story structure of Pulp Fiction and its impact on storytelling. And then again, you will be on at the end of May as a panel member for the Kill Bill Volume 2 20th anniversary celebration. So you get a, a triple bill this season on season three. It's three for three. Yeah, the triple crown, the Pulp Fiction triple crown. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to be able to do multiples of them because uh, truth be told, uh, Pulp Fiction is not one of my favorite Tarantino films. I know. Films. I saw that just the other day. I was like, well. And because someone yeah. asked me, is anyone coming on who's not the biggest fan of it? And again, I just, when I put out who wants to come on, I, I don't care your reasoning because I think uh, discourse is always good as well. I don't want, uh, this isn't a, a trumpet podcast. This isn't just, hey, Tarantino's the greatest. Because this last year, I've talked nothing but shit about the man and him changing <laughs> his upcoming movie from a TV show. But I've probably discussed that a lot of times when people tired of me saying that. So I did say this year, although it's, when well, you listen to it, it's 2024, but I have not broken my New Year's resolution, which was not to talk about anymore since it's the last day of 2023 when you and I are recording. <laughs> it's a fucking loophole, loophole baby. Loopholes. <laughs> loophole. We love a loophole. Oh, man. So what are you doing as far as your podcast ventures coming up for 2024? And since when we actually release this, this will be two, I think, two days after Valentine's. Any Valentine's Day plans that you would have already had in the past, but now that we're talking about it for the future. It's a very oh, man. back to the future moment we're having on our podcast. My 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 podcast scheduling is a lot more uh, consistent, predictable than my dating life. We'll say, uh, who knows <laughs> uh, uh, if I will be having Valentine's Day plans? But I know on the podcast uh, February we're uh, right now doing erotic thrillers. Uh, so I, so I have uh, so I got uh, people like Brian De Palma to uh, be my Valentine this month. Nice. Uh, but yeah, Spectre Cinema Club. Uh, we had a really good 2023. Uh, probably our best year yet in terms of like numbers and growth, which is always, you know, great to see, uh, especially, you know, third year into the pod, but Hey, Whenever it comes, you know, it still feels nice. And uh, yeah, so we had a we had a really fun year, uh, first full year under like kind of the new name, too, because we had like a name switch uh, probably in between uh, my appearances on this show. Uh, yes, I think, yes. I think uh, I think the first episode I did, uh, my podcast was still Bloody Blunts at the time. <laughs> How much of it do you think correlates uh, with the rebranding of, of the show? Do you think that brought more people in or do you just think that it was just basically the content? That kind of helped push it. I mean, it's a little bit of both, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, people talk about you know consistency in podcasting being such an important thing. So like that was like one thing. Just like season one of uh, the podcast, like had you know different show formats, and then I didn't have a host, a co-host at the time either. Um, so, so once I brought Garrett in and then like bringing him on, uh, we still were bloody blunts for a minute, but like, it just kind of didn't feel right. Cause that's not really his personality for the podcast. So like, we wanted to change it, uh, into something that was, you know, wholly unique for us. So like, you know, so now we've done, you know, uh, this past year was all under the, the new brand, the new name, but like keeping the format consistent and, uh, and it, you know, like, and we just really, uh, kind of honed in, you know, like we we're like, we honed in on our rhythm as co-hosts together and things like that. So um, I think it was uh, kind of the perfect storm of uh, uh, various different stuff, you know, because like not only when we changed the name and I brought him on, he does all the artwork and stuff. So like he did like kind of also bring a, uh, you know, more visual consistency for uh, the show as well. So uh, yeah, shout out to my boy Garrett. He's a big Tarantino fan. We'll uh, have to get him on at some point. Yeah, we have to get him on. I didn't know. Uh, and I also do like uh, your new logo, your new design. I mean, it's new, not new, but as we're talking 
talking to people who may not mm-hmm. have listened or heard your episode. It is a very cool uh, looking logo you got. Yeah, thank you. Uh, anything else coming up in your podcasting life, or are you going to leave that save that for a later date? Oh yeah, no, I can uh, because it'll be uh, coming at the end of this month. Uh, Courage the Cowardly Pod, uh, oh, you know, because as uh, we were great talking, name. but uh, thank you, of course. Great I mean, it was name. Kind of, it's a layup. It was a layup, but hey, layups are still points. Uh, you know, and, um, but I was telling you off mic, uh, you know, it was kind of inspired by coming on this pod. I want to kind of have a, you know, very comprehensive kind of singular project, you know, to, uh, as a, as a podcasting project as well. And, and, you know, on top of doing Spectre Cinema Club and then I do Pond Pendulum as well. So like, I just, I just can't stop potting, you know, I'm addicted. What can I, I say? know, I know it's fucking a nightmare. I've got, as I was telling you also, this was just a two episode podcast is all I was doing since then this year it's three episodes a month and I also do two episodes of my cheeky bastards where I me and my co-host Steve we have two different versions we have our regular now action themed men of action and then our Bruce Willis 40 uh, movies that went to direct to DVD called Dropping a Bruce. So I'm doing five fucking episodes a goddamn month. And that's not including any of the special ones I like to throw in because I clearly have no goddamn life. But uh, what are you going to do? It's, it's, it's fun. I, I really enjoy the conversations. Like the drag is the putting it together, the production of it, right? I, I enjoy the, the research. I enjoy, you know, the editing part is where it's like, all right, you know, because I mean, I listen to my voice and other people's voice so much. Mm-hmm. I'll spend three, four days with you and your voice. And you're gone, but it's just like hear you in my head as I'm as I'm editing. I think maybe why I do it so much is I enjoy the conversations. I was telling you off mic. I always feel bad. I love having a guest on. I love talking to them. And then the minute I'm off camera, I go and I start to a new guest. I feel like I'm cheating. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm being disingenuous as a friend. But the friendships that I have made are actually I feel stronger and more firm than the ones I've had in I don't want to say real life, but you know my day to day journeys. I see most of I see all of you through a camera. The people I get to record with. I don't know if you're, you know, how close you are to the people you're recording with, but even my co-host is over in England, you know? So it's just, it's a really cool thing to be able to just have this, you know, if anyone asks me, why would you, why should I podcast? I would say you need to podcast because you're going to meet like-minded people who are going to grow your experience in the films and stuff you love that you did not know you could have. And you'll consider them better friends than even the people you probably spent a lot of time in your life with because I don't know like there's there's no animosity I, I enjoy every moment and sometimes when the two hours is over it's like oh oh well I'm gonna have to text them like I've you know I've got a lot of text threads with people because I'm like I'm still gonna keep in contact because I you know I don't want it to just end here when we're done talking oh yeah like it, it's fascinating because like I've, I've been you know I'm skeptical of parasocial relationships in certain ways and like but mainly it's been like this past year and like a musician's uh, relationship with their fans. So that's kind of weird to me. But then when I think about like my podcast, I'm like, no, like that is like you said, where a lot of my friendships come from. Like, you know, having people that I talk with regularly, uh, getting to do it. And, you know, and, uh, it, you know, because I mean, if I didn't do it in podcast form, if I didn't record it, then, you know, I can't talk uh, to somebody at the bar about all 53 episodes of Courage Power of the Dog. <laughs> they just they don't want to hear it. Uh, but if I produce it, you know, then, uh, you know, hopefully some other do as well but yeah you know the friendships uh made throughout uh podcasting is uh so fun like i'm you know me and garrett are lucky enough that we actually live in the same city together uh so like we get to do a lot of the, the recording and stuff in person and stuff which is uh which is super great and stuff but then being able to keep up with uh people that i have you know amassed over over years of doing this and uh, meeting people through the internet is uh just uh it's, it's super cool like it really is like even even if only 20 even if my episodes were getting 25 downloads 
I'd still be doing it because I'm like, Hey, that's 25 people. I care to, you know, hang out with yes. me for a couple hours, you know? And I think about that whenever I listen to podcasts, I'm like, you know, cause not only do I have guests on and stuff, I listen to their shows as well. And it's like, yeah. you know, and it's like, Hey, I get to hang out with them, you know, for like a couple yeah. hours, even if we're like not hanging out, you know, and you get a chance to hear what they do and go, Oh, that's cool. That was a good idea. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a fun community of people just sharing ideas, but you're getting in where you fit in, you know, like we're talking to people who have very similar tastes, but also bring something new to the party. It's just a fucking fun time. And I, I really love it. And I thought about it in my head, like, when, when will I ever stop? And I thought, I don't know. This may be the thing I do till I die because I thoroughly fucking enjoy it. Someone would have to physically come stop me from podcasting. And then I would pull a jigsaw where I still have all this pre-recorded material. And it was like, aha, now you just triggered the trap. Now all this unreleased stuff is out in the world. Aha. So it's never. We're here to discuss one of the greatest fucking characters, in my opinion, to ever grace the screens. Jules motherfucking Winfield. And that is how you're properly supposed to address this gentleman. It's Jules motherfucking Winfield. And what is your personal connection to Jules? What were your initial impression on the character? And has it changed over time? You know, it's uh, it's fascinating because, I mean, I think I think you could point to a lot of roles for Samuel Jackson where, especially in this like kind of uh, moment in the 90s where it's like, this was like kind of like where he like really like kind of came through. But like, this is like where Samuel Jackson started to get like etched into movie iconography, mm-hmm. you know, like just because of, you know, the, the imagery from this film, the quotes from this film, you know, all the different things, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't put this like in my top five Sam Jackson performances, but as far as like, you know, but like when you think of Sam Jackson, I think about him in a greasy Jerry curl with a black <laughs> you know suit on, you know, like I just like sometimes can't help it. So with that, uh, I find fascinating, but like uh, kind of I was mentioning a little bit earlier, um, it, you know, this isn't uh, I mean, there are no bad Tarantino films. So saying this is lower on my list or not my favorite is not a dig. Uh, however, uh, I would say uh, as of now, which I'm going to have to watch it a few more times, obviously, uh, throughout this season. But I've only seen this movie. This was like my third watch, maybe. Mm. So I've mm. never so I so I haven't had a super strong uh, connection with it. Um, but on this time around, I definitely, um, I, I felt a little bit of it. Um, I was on a date the other night and this gal, uh, was talking about, uh, how I'm a moody boy and how my irritableness is noticeable. So I was thinking about that while I was watching this and I was like, see, I need to be a little bit more like Jules. Cause like, he's able to like, he's able to turn it on and off. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like he, yeah. he's able to take <laughs> the shit. Like, like, uh, you know how many times when I'm, Barton at work. I'm like, keep the mask on. Don't let them see you make that face when they ask that dumb question. Uh, but you know, but you can't help it, you know, but like he can, you know? Uh, so it's like, I need to do a better in 2024 of, uh, keeping my jewels, uh, mask on because, uh, he, he handles things uh, a lot better, uh, than, than I do. And then I should, that I aspire to. So you guys have the inner monologue like, bitch, be cool. Tell that bitch to chill the fuck out. Literally. I had somebody <laughs> ask me, how to make their potatoes not so hot. And I just like, I want to like literally be like, you motherfucker, like what? Like I, I should smack you with, with the menu right now, but I can't. I can't do that. Bitch, put your lips close together and blow through them. That is how they will get less hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
little cooking advice from the Church of Tarantino. <laughs> you remember Antoine Rockamora, half black, half Samoan, used to call him Tony Rocky Howard? Yeah, maybe fat, right? I wouldn't go so far as to call the brother fat. I mean, he got a weight problem. What's the nigga gonna do? He's Samoan. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. What about him? Well, Marcellus fucked him up good. Word around the campfire is it was on account of Marcellus Wallace's wife. What'd he do, fucker? No, 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 nothing that bad. Well, then what then? Gave her a foot massage. Foot massage? That's it? Mm-hmm. Then what'd Marcellus do? Sent a couple of cats over to his place. They took him out on his patio, threw his ass over the balcony. Nigga fell four stories. Had a little garden down at the bottom, closed in glass like a greenhouse. Nigga fell through that. Since then, he kind of developed a speech impediment. That's a damn shame. And now, the AI Psychological Evaluation. In order for us to better understand the psychological makeup of Jules Winfield, I turned to good old reliable AI, not Alan Iverson, but artificial intelligence, and asked it to perform a psychological evaluation on him. And here are the results of that very evaluation. Jules exudes confidence and charisma, particularly in the way he delivers his iconic monologues. This confidence may reflect a deep sense of self-assuredness or could be a defense mechanism to cope with the dangerous and unpredictable nature of his profession. Mr. Winfield is not a stranger to violence and even displays that he has violent tendencies. Suggests a desensitization of violence, possibly as a result of prolonged exposure to a criminal lifestyle. Jules exhibits moments of intellectual depth, especially when quoting biblical verses. This complexity hints at a deeper inner life beyond his violent exterior, perhaps influenced by personal beliefs or need for meaning in his actions. Mr. Winfield often uses humor in tense situations, showcasing it as a coping mechanism to deal with the stress and danger inherent in his line of work. This humor may serve to disarm others or help him maintain emotional control. Jules engages in philosophical reflection, particularly after the divine intervention incident. This suggests an inner struggle with morality and the consequences of his actions. The decision to leave his life of crime may indicate a desire for redemption or a search for a more meaningful existence. Despite his social connections within the criminal world, Jules appears somewhat isolated. His contemplative moments and decision to leave the criminal life suggest a desire for personal growth and a break from the isolating effects of criminal lifestyle. Jules' decision to leave the criminal life behind reflects a deeper moral reflection. His acknowledgement of the impact of his actions on others and his desire for change indicate a moral struggle and the possibility of redemption. In conclusion, Jules Winfield is a multifaceted character with a complex blend of confidence, aggression, intellect, and a desire for personal growth and redemption. His journey throughout the film provides glimpses into the psychological aspects of a hitman grappling with morality, loyalty, and the search for meaning in a violent world. What do you think about what AI, whoever they may be, uh, has felt about all the stuff that it was able to take from the background and the movie and stuff of Mr. Jules Winfield, when looking at it deeper, it really kind of opens your eyes to a character. You just sit there and go, oh, yeah, I know him. And then you go, whoa, geez, I guess he has all these fucking picadillos. I mean, hit a lot of it on, hit the nail on the head on a lot of different points. For me, like one of the things that kind of stood out to me, and it's kind of a, a theme that I've looked into uh, in, in films a lot more often this past year. I have noticed it's like kind of something I'm... Uh, always intrigued on as, uh, as accountability from characters, uh, you know, uh, in their, in their situations, uh, because it's something I kind of think about in life a lot as well. And with Jules, 
uh, and like the AI mentioned, it's like he, he has an awareness about, you know, his past and the things that he does and, you know, and who who he is as a person. Like he's not going to be one of those people that's going to try and talk you into, you know, convincing you that he's a good person or something. He knows what kind of person he is and the things that he's done. But, you know, he, he takes the things for the way that they are and and is able to just like kind of be like, hey, I got it. And that's how he takes the world as well. You know, I think he uh, definitely kind of sees things in a, you know, kind of black and white, like, you know, kind of ultra realist kind of lens. And and I find that very fascinating because especially when you compare him against uh, Vincent, you know, who often uh, does not take accountability and is often not aware of, you know, the way that he is as a person and the way that uh, his actions affect things around him. He's totally unaware of all those things, while Jules, you know, 100% is. You know, he is, like, so rooted uh, by his, you know, uh, past experiences and uh, kind of just knowing himself in a very real way um, that he's able to uh, kind of still have a, uh, a, a chance at, at growing uh, in certain ways. Um, but yeah, will will uh, will he ever be redeemed? No, but he but he also understands that. I don't think he has any. I don't think he has a falseness about you know redemption for him for himself personally. But he knows, hey, I can still learn things though. I can still grow. You kind of see that at the end where he like finally you know in the diner sequence like you know after how many years goes hey i think i kind of finally figured out what i why i like this bible verse uh, you know uh you know it took him you know that long to like kind of figure that out you know so it's like he he does still have a chance to learn even if redemption is not on the table anymore i think it's interesting too because the path of his redemption there is no real sense that he was religious to begin with maybe maybe not like i said he may have been brought up religiously but obviously walked the path of the non-righteous man, as he likes to say. And I'm not a very religious person, so this isn't going to be like a theological debate. But having also been uh, brought up uh, in the Christian faith when I was younger, the path of redemption just requires you to walk the path of redemption based on the the Judeo-Christian biblical terms of it. So if, in fact, he does make this change and goes on, now, what happens when we die? I don't know. One, no one knows. I don't care what anyone says. No one fucking truly knows what happens when the lights go out for the last time for us. We just don't know. But if in your belief system, it you go to a, a place to be with the creator that you come from, then so be it. But he's on that path. Like it, The fact that he is able to take responsibility, which even in today, today's society, there is a strong lack of accepting responsibility for your actions and your words. We have become a society that is just like Vincent. We're the victims. We blame everyone else for what we did. What was I supposed to do? I, I couldn't. I mean, you blame someone else. You blame the circumstance. You yes. blame this. Like, you know, uh, yeah, like, it's it's mm-hmm. the migrant workers on the farm in Topeka, Kansas. That's why I got fired from my job. Not because I was trying to fuck the boss's wife. It's the migrant workers. They took my job. This is all happens. And it's like, We don't want to be responsible in the fact that in that last speech, which is such a good ending, which is such a good ending for people if you when when you start to like watch the movie more, him coming to the realization that he is a piece of shit and that the guy across from is a weaker piece of shit, but he wants to be, he wants to be the righteous man. He wants to be that now. That is a come to Jesus moment. They say that very few of us have the ability to sit there and self-reflect and go, wow, I'm a fucking piece of shit. I am such garbage. And then go, 
God damn it, I'm going to fucking change. It's like the man in the mirror, Michael Jackson song. We're going to make that change. He's going to make that change. And I don't know, it's a powerful moment that you're right. It's why Jules lives. It's why Vincent dies. Jules sees the errors and knows that if he doesn't make a change now, next time those bullets won't miss him. And where Vincent doesn't see it, enjoys his bacon, not the bacon has anything to do with it, but, and then goes ahead He's and gonna gets fucked up later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, but yeah, like that's 100%. Like, you know, I don't know if it's because of uh, the amount of Saw movies I watched this past year that like, it, again, <laughs> is like another like very case study and in, in accountability in a, in a mm-hmm. very fascinating way. And And I don't even see it as like, you know, like, because obviously, yes, yeah, so like we see them walk out those doors and like we know that Vincent's going off to get killed and we don't know what uh, what Jules is going off to do. And I don't know if he's even his moment of clarity is him like thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a righteous man. I can like, you know, pivot into walking, uh, you know, or walking the way of the righteous man. Of, but it's of him like kind of, you know, seeing seeing like the way that, you know, what how he ended up in that position in that diner is because a piece of shit people like him, but the, the, the whole diner scene could have went down a whole different way. Mm-hmm. Him and Vincent probably could have handled the whole thing. If they really want, like if they really want to, they could have made it out of that. They could have taken the money for themselves and it'd be whatever. But of him kind of having a moment of like, just knowing like, Oh, like, you know, like we are the pieces of shit, but like, we still have to be able to coexist uh, to, to make the uh, less, uh, suffering and crazy events, you know, happen around them. Like, you know, like when he kind of reflects on, you know, the day he just had of just being like, oh my God, the shit that I just went through, you know, for this case, you know, you can choose to, you know, add on to that kind of thing. Or he, you know, at one point goes, hey, you know, I don't need to, you know, kill you, even though you are uh, a weaker piece of shit than me. I don't have to do that because if we can, if it's like, hey, the, the shitty people also have to exist in the world to like kind of keep things moving uh, to a degree. It's all about balance, you know? Uh, yeah. So, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what uh, what Jules is uh, going to go do leaving that diner. What's her name? Mia. Mia. How do Marcellus and her meet? I don't know. However people meet people. She used to be an actress. Oh, really? she do anything out of scene? And I think her biggest deal was she starred in a pilot. Pilot? What's a pilot? Well, you know the show's on TV? I don't watch TV. Yeah, but you are aware that there's an invention called television, and on this invention they show shows, right? Yeah. Well, the way they pick TV shows is they make one show. That show's called a pilot. Then they show that one show to the people who pick shows, and on the strength of that one show, they decide if they want to make more shows. Some get chosen and become television programs. Some don't. Become nothing. She started one of the ones that became nothing. Right now, we're going to find out who was Jules Winfield. We're going to explore some of Jules' background, his history, and his arc within the film. know about Jules is this. He has a vegan girlfriend and is a cold-blooded killer. But who is he really? We know more about Vincent and some of that has to do with the fact that as you learn that his name is Vincent Vega, it clearly becomes 
apparent to those of us who are big fans that, oh shit, he's the brother or somehow related to Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs. So there's already a little bit of story. We also find out about Vincent. He's coming back from Amsterdam. He's going to go on a date with Mia. He's been entrusted with that. <laughs> Honey trap. Anyways, but we don't know anything about Jules. We no. know nothing about Jules. We don't know where he comes from. We just know that he's their man in Inglewood. We know he lives in Inglewood, California. He has a Jerry Curl, a sweet Jerry Curl, uh, a badass Fu Manchu. He likes to spout the Bible, says motherfucker a lot. Really enjoyed that Kahuna Burger, and you don't fuck with him. But we really don't know a goddamn thing truly about Jules Winfield. Who do we think he is in reality? Before he decides to go on his path. He's a mystery. He know? really like, is. Like, we can make like, up more for Marcellus than we can for him because at least Marcellus is the lead of a gang. This guy is just almost like a number at a, you know, like if he was like a dad entry person, he's just like a number at a company that we just don't know anything about. You know, and, and I think that's a testament to one. He's a great conversationalist because when he's talking with people, um, he asks lots of questions and, and things like that. And he brings up points. Mm -hmm. He doesn't talk about himself. Uh, which is something I love. Uh, I live in L.A. Uh, a lot of my encounters are, oh, let me talk about myself for the next 90 minutes and all my things. And, and it's like, great. So he doesn't do that. So I think that's a testament to him as a, uh, so I think he is a, he's a, seems to be a curious person. Uh, he's, he takes me as somebody that probably does uh, the Sunday crossword. Uh, he seems like kind of one of those kind of guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or he seems like a Jeopardy man. I bet he, he uh, he's probably one of those people that can like sit there on the on the couch and like you know like know ninety percent of the stuff on Jeopardy, but he's never going to audition for it because he doesn't need <laughs> to prove himself. That's the kind of guy that uh, I that I get from Jules. Because really, yeah, the only things that we ever hear about him are about previous killings he's done that's yeah. it yeah. we don't know his favorite sports team uh we don't know like you know uh, about his family uh we know that he uh apparently gives the perfect foot massages uh that is uh <laughs> one thing that we know so he's a he's a he's a nurturing uh, a foot motherfucking master <laughs> he's the foot father fucking master uh he's a so he's an acts of service guy in his relationships uh, uh so you know we that's yeah we can gain few details but i think it is fascinating like how yeah like when you look back and you're like really trying to think like did i learn anything about this guy but that's still being like like compelling you know mm -hmm. like and like because again his his curiosity is uh is kind of what intrigues me you know like he uh you know when having a conversation he doesn't always like stick his foot firmly on either side of like a of a debate or something he's like well, unless it's pork unless yeah. it's pork it's the only thing he stands pork. on yeah it's the line too far. Everything else, he's good with. Pork is his line too fucking far. <laughs> now, where in the hierarchy of Marcellus's criminal empire do we think he falls? Because on my last episode, myself and Petros discussed Vince. And you can tell that Vince is higher up on the hierarchy within the organization. Vince was entrusted with whatever he had to do in Amsterdam. He's the traveler. He's, he's, he's handling the wire. Well, the greeting he gets from Marcellus after the whole, even blowing off Marvin's head and the whole thing goes fucking sideways. Marcellus is happy to see him. Marcellus entrusts him within a few days of being back with taking out his wife, which there's a lot that we'll talk about her next month when we get into Mrs. Mia Wallace. And is she as innocent as she tries to portray herself? Or are there some hints that maybe she's not as innocent Especially when we had that conversation between our man Jules and Paul behind the bar when they're busting Vinny's balls about taking her out on a date. And then the whole Tony Rocky Hora, you know, uh, mystique mm -hmm. that's going on. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, Vince is definitely higher up the ladder. 
Um, I think I think Jules is uh, the one that I think he's, but I think he's been around uh, the this uh, kind of business and association for a good while. I think he's one of those people. He uh, doesn't want to climb higher up the ladder. He's a he's a firm being a you know a, you know a level three kind of guy <laughs> uh, taking taking care of stuff and you know that's uh, that's comfortable and uh, seems to do just fine for him. So like I. Uh, take him as someone that he's like never strove to want to go any higher. He doesn't want to get any deeper in uh, than he like kind of needs to be uh, in this uh, in this like kind of whole association. But like, but you can tell though by his knowledge that you know he does know you know all the different inner workings. He knows you know uh, he remembers the stuff from you know a few years ago that went down or like whatever. So like he, he's been around for a good while and has a good amount of knowledge within the organization, but like, I just don't think he uh, cares to, uh, you know, go, uh, go up any higher. He could easily, um, it, he seems like he would, could be like Marcellus is like number one right hand. If he like, they seem like they would get along much better than Vincent Marcellus would, you know? So it's like, I think he like just doesn't need it. I think he's um, like a Mr. Wolf type. He's the guy they go to that Marcellus goes to for this type of thing he runs the show like when he and vincent meet vincent as we discussed on the last episode it does seem like vincent's a higher because jules is driving vincent and usually in this kind of thing the guy who's driving in the workforce part is driving the boss or someone higher up however when we get into the actual moment of having to do this this is jules show vincent's there for show vincent's that guy that they're not sure what's going to happen but jules is running the show the minute they walk through the fucking door he's running the show in the diner he literally keeps the show going when they shoot the, the mm-hmm. guy's head off. Jules may not be higher up than Vincent in the organization, but when it comes to someone who is a sure, steady guy that you can rely on, mm-hmm. he's Mr. Reliability. You know yes. that if I call Mr. Wolf, this shit's going to get taken care of. If I ask uh, Jules to take someone out, this motherfucker is getting taken out. I want my case back. I'm getting the motherfucking case back. He calls in his dog to take care of this. He doesn't call Jules to get rid of Zed. That's another thing. But he mm-hmm. calls in Jules if he wants to, if like if Zed was a mastermind or something, he calls in Jules to end that fucking shit tonight. So Jules would be the guy, if he was still there, Jules is the guy that they're sending after Butch. Mm-hmm. If Jules is still in the organization, Jules is the guy that's going to find Butch. That's who he's sending to find. I, I feel that that's, that's where his niche is. He, he found his niche. He's a cold-blooded killer. And that's what he can do. And I bet Marcellus is a little bit like, God damn it. Why did you have to quit a couple days before this fucking cracker decides to not throw the fight and I've got to kill this motherfucker. You know what I mean? Like I, he would have been my number one guy to send after him. He, I stick the mm-hmm. dog on him without jewels. He's definitely missing uh, an ace in his, in his, uh, his deck. Yeah. He's, he's what we, uh, what, what we footballers call a game manager. Uh, he is, you know, he's the steady <laughs> hand. He can guide you to 10 wins every single season if it needed to. Uh, he's not throwing many picks, uh, you know, and he's, but he's not ruffling feathers either. As Sean Connery says in the, uh, in the rock, he's not the guy though who goes home and fucks the prom queen, right? He's just, he's a game manager. The superstar goes home and fucks the prom queen. He just, <laughs> he dates the other uh, prom queens. Somewhat, he doesn't, okay he doesn't, friend. he doesn't take the, he doesn't get the prom queen. He doesn't uh, <laughs> take the crime boss's wife out. This See? Is, Boom. We, yes. Yes. This is true. So. I do feel he is highly regarded by Marcellus, but I do think that maybe he hasn't shown any aspirations to be anything more. Maybe, you know, yeah. who knows? We, I mean, the one thing that we, I wish we could have got him, and uh, you don't know about this, but we talked about it last month that people would have heard on the Inglorious Blue Balls about the very first announcement Tarantino made, which was the Vega Brothers, a.k.a. Double V Vega, 
we might have understood what happened in Amsterdam that broke the, you know, the brothers when they got together. There's some, there's some holes that could have been filled in mm-hmm. that we would have known why maybe, obviously, Jules wasn't sent over. Maybe, you know, could we would have found out why Vincent was the guy they picked to send over there. And maybe it's something that happened over there where Vincent now earned his trust and admiration because of what he was able to do while he was in Amsterdam. It's just something we'll never know, which is kind of cool. I like the hypothesizing, the speculating on it, not knowing. Jules, Jules seems like he hates flying. I yeah. bet you. I bet you that's the number one reason he didn't want to go do the Amsterdam job. He's like Mr. T from the A Team. He's like, he's like, sorry, Marcellus, I don't get on planes. He's like, dude, send someone else. I don't want to. <laughs> now, do we feel confident that Jules stayed out of the life and walked the path of the righteous man? Do you feel? confident or is it one of those moments where like you know some people go they wake up from a bender and go shit i get my shit together i'm going back to college and doing all this stuff and then they feel good about that decision but then maybe there's a little obstacle that gets in the wind like ah fuck it i'm going back to the way the things i know what do we assume i i i still think the latter honestly um i i i could see him again like uh if, you know if he if he thinks he's gonna you know turn into, you know, pivot into something else or, or, you know, try to grow into, you know, this kind of different person. But I think he, again, he understands like, you know, what type of cog he is in the machine, uh, you know? And like, so he, he, for me, I think it, it's still a, I'm going to kind of kind of stick to what I know, but like, but, but having, you know, maybe uh, thinking a little bit deeper on, on uh, his actions uh, and the weight of them. Um, but I don't think he's going to stop killing anytime soon. He's, he's in too deep already. He's in too deep, and now do you think he do you think he changes it to like he's like he like justifies his kills? Like he only kills bad people, kind of thing. You know that, that vigilante type of hero. I could see him enacting a code. Yeah, like going forward, like all right, like let me put some, you know, like these are my 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 three pillars that I don't I don't fuck up. You know, maybe. I mean, but. he did say he was going to get himself into adventures that like came from Kung Fu. So he just he just said he was quitting the life. He, he doesn't say he's going to Ooh, not kill people. Up. He just said, I'm going to quit being a hitman. Doesn't mean I'm not going to kill for other people to help them kind of he's thing. He's going to go Ronin. He's yeah, gonna a Ronin. A, exactly. He's a Ronin. Uh, yeah. A Ronin Samurai Jewels movie. That would yeah. be pretty. Yeah. That would be kind of dope, like with uh, those vibes. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably the the route he's going. Like, yeah, he's, he's not leaving the life completely, but he's going to. Uh, you know, change how he approaches the life. I think that maybe when he hears about the death of Vincent, it may affirm his belief that, you know what? I made the right fucking mm-hmm. choice. Yeah, I think so. Man, I've just been sitting here thinking. About what? About the miracle we witnessed. Miracle you witnessed. I witnessed a freak occurrence. What is a miracle, Vincent? Act of God. And what's an act of God? When, um, God makes the impossible possible. But this morning, I don't think it qualifies. Hey, Vincent, don't you see that shit don't matter? You're judging this shit the wrong way. I mean, it could be God stopped the bullets or he changed Coke to Pepsi. He found my fucking car keys. You don't judge shit like this based on merit. Now, whether or not what we experienced was an according to Hoyle miracle is insignificant. But what is significant is I felt the touch of God. God got involved. But why? Well, that's what's fucking with me. I don't know why, but I can't go back to sleep. You serious? You really thinking about quitting? The life? Yeah. Most definitely. Fuck. What's she gonna do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm gonna deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just gonna walk the earth. <laughs> 
What you mean walk to Earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk to Earth? Until God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. So you decided to be a bum? I'll just be Jules, Vincent. No more, no less. No, Jules. You decided to be a bum. Just like all those pieces of shit out there who beg for change, who sleep in garbage bins, and eat what I throw away. They got a name for that, Jules. It's called a bum. And without a job, a residence, or legal tender, that's what you're gonna be, man. You're gonna be a fucking bum. Look, my friend, this is just where you and I differ. Garson! Coffee! Jules, look, what happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. Don't fucking talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. We're gonna get into the relationships of these characters, and we'll start with Vincent. They're good friends. There's definitely a camaraderie, and when we open the movie... It is two people who know each other getting caught up, right? Like, mm-hmm. they've worked together before, and obviously there's been, there's a three-year gap in their friendship, or at least their work relationship, and so they know each other. And you can tell because, you know, the way they talked, even at the, after everything that's happened, they're having breakfast, there's just communications, and Vincent is actually upset that Jules wants to lead the life. So Vincent even likes Jules. Like, they've probably worked together before, and things have been kosher, because it's like... Sometimes when we podcast, right, like you, you can kind of associate this. You may not talk to somebody for months, but if you've already podcast with somebody for a couple of times, and you kind of know them and their show or how they are. It's like you slip back in. It's like putting on a nice, mm-hmm. comfortable slipper. It's like, I know how this is going to jive. I know how yeah, yeah. this is going to go, you know, and I think that's similar to them. They kind of ease back into this relationship. Crazy six, seven hours they spent together that it was. But I don't know that they're best of friends. And I don't know that. Him hearing that Vincent had died would change anything. I think it actually would be the reverse. I think Vincent would be more incensed if it had been Jules who had been killed as opposed. And that kind of goes to with the the whole well, having trouble uh, making friends and him being isolated mm-hmm. that we learned about in there in his diagnosis. So your thoughts on him and Vincent's relationship and does Vincent look at him more like a uh, kind of like when Jules looks at the wolf as like he's now like his protege for a second? Do you like think Vincent kind of looks at Jules and like I kind of want to be more like Jules? He's kind of got the situation under control. Oh, he he's the kind of guy that or like their relationship. Like Vincent goes around saying like, oh yeah, that's my best friend. Uh, Jules would never call Vincent his best friend. <laughs> uh, you know they're good friends and like you yes. said they're they're good they're good friends they're good working. Uh, have a good working relationship and like yeah like you can even tell like you know whenever they go to do a thing like they have like kind of their their maneuvers and they have like verbiage between each other you know so it's like uh they they definitely have that and and there is still i don't think he would yeah like he's not going out for to get revenge for the the death of vincent like he's gonna because i think uh in this one, it's like, you know, this is where he kind of has the moment of like, hey, we've done some really great work together. Uh, this is like, a, this is, you know, a, a breaking up a, a, a duo that never won the championship uh, <laughs> that like you were kind of, and it's like, hey, okay, I'm about to, I'm, I'm going to go to a different team now. Because the, the, the scene that I found very interesting about their relationship uh, is whenever they are cleaning the car, mm. uh, they're, they're cleaning the car and they're like kind of bickering and like you, and by this point we've seen them have these like married couple bicker <laughs> fights, you know, a, a good amount of the time throughout and it's always fun. But when they're cleaning the car, like there's this contempt that Jules has for Vincent in this moment where he's just like, Hey, like I know shit goes sideways on jobs sometimes, but like, hey, this could have been avoided and you fucked up and you need to like and you need to fucking 
uh, take some accountability for it, you know, <laughs> and, and Vincent is still even with, you know, a wolf, like kind of trying to help them out of the situation and he's still making it harder. And like, at one point, like Jules gets fed up for a second, like, and he's like, and then he's like, and why am I the one back in the backseat <laughs> cleaning this up? You should be back here to uh, clean up the brain chunks. I'll clean the windows. So like him saying that is like, I hate you right now. I'm still going to help you because, you know, like I, I got your back. <laughs> so like, I'm still going to clean the blood off the windows because I, I got you, but I'm not going to be the one cleaning up the brain chunks, you know? <laughs> yeah, so it's yeah. like, so that's the like motherfucker kind of, made the mistake. Get your bitch ass back and you clean this shit up. So like, that's kind of the workmanship respect that they kind of, they have for each other. He, he, he respects uh, Vincent to a degree, but I wouldn't say he like cares for him. Uh, you know, he, I think he trusts him to a certain degree because they work these dangerous jobs together. You kind of have to have that level of trust, but does he like love him or anything? Would he ask Vincent to be uh, his best man whenever he marries his <laughs> vegan girlfriend? Probs not. I don't think so. And I think that's going to hurt Vincent's feelings when he, <laughs> uh, <laughs> if he, if he learned that he was not Jules's best man, cause he thinks he is. <laughs> I think the relationship sours after the shooting that they survive. Yeah. They both see it from different perspectives. And then Vincent gets careless or intentional. There is some rumors out there that maybe Vincent shot Marvin on purpose. Uh, he oh. does lean down to Marvin and say to him, did you forget about the guy in the bathroom with the hand cannon? Looked a little pissed about that. And then, actually, you know, however, the reaction does say mm. it was a surprise. So there is that. But as the story goes from this hit on, we got the Marvin incident. Then we've got to go to Jimmy's, and he's fucking up the towels, and then he's fucking pissing off fucking Mr. Wolf. And then he's got the diner under control, and Vince almost fucks that up. Like, there mm -hmm. are moments where I think Jules has realized that in the three years that we haven't been together, while it was nice to get acquainted with you again, we are in different... Forget the fact that they survived the shooting. Mm -hmm. I think he hadn't had that moment. I still think him shooting, all the other stuff that happens with it, he's kind of like, I don't know that I'm going to work with him if I have to again, unless forced to i think jules sees that vincent's not who he was you know in the three years that things have changed he sees him like a risk management type yeah, thing yes, and yes, i yes. think he does a risk think, assessment quickly and at, at this point this is where he's like hey yeah we, we did some good work we had some good performances we made some good money um but i don't think it's kind of worth it anymore like you're you're, yeah. you're slipping up uh you know the like you know we, we they were able to kind of slip into their roles again but at the same time like you said like this was just like oh it's, it's just like quite not the same uh yeah. anymore this is this is when a player gets traded back to a team yeah and then and then they don't do as well on the second stint you yeah, exactly. know hey, and it's just like, ah, it's just like not oh, the great. same. yeah and it's just like mm, yeah it's just not the same anymore <laughs> this dude holds the ball six seconds getting sacked every play like i can't do this anymore <laughs> i'm running these routes it's over with i can't i can't i can't work in this kind of situation now the big man one of the things i love about doing this podcast and my love for not just this film, but all the films. But as you talk and you, and you go through it enough times, things start to crystallize in your mind that may or may not be true, but you start to, you start to see things that have probably always been there, but now you're starting to put your own interpretation of what's going on. And for me, with Marcellus and Jules, the only person in this film not afraid of Jules or not afraid of Marcellus is Jules Winfield. Jules Winfield is not afraid of Marcellus, and maybe that is why he's not as high up on the pedestal as maybe Marcellus knows mm -hmm. that Jules isn't afraid because Vince is afraid of him. Me is afraid of him. Everyone else in the fucking world is afraid of him. Lance is afraid of him just at the mere spouting of his name. Butch originally is also afraid of him. 
but not Jules. Jules like, you know, when when Vince like, yo, you're going to tell him everybody left show. He's like, I don't give a goddamn if he does. Like, he's like, I don't give a fuck. And then he's yelling. And like, I need you to tell me to go back in there, chill these out, and wait mm-hmm. for the cavalry. You know what I mean? He's like, why the fuck aren't you doing something about this shit? Then that's when Marcel's like, you happy now, motherfucker? But you feel like, oh, this is probably why Marcel's might have been okay with him walking away. Maybe Marcel's had a little reservation that if Jules ever got fucking squirrely, the person who might come from the crown could have been Jules. Mm-hmm. And now that I say that out loud, I'll also ask you, what do you think his relationship is? And when he walks away, does does Marcel's let him walk away? Or does Marcel's do what a lot of mafia bosses have purportedly done, which is sometimes if someone's too happy in the organization, knows too much, they don't retire. They go. They get retired. They, they get retired. Yeah, they a little Breaking Bad. They're they're going to one of the islands and they're uh, taking a long vacation. Um. Well, considering considering uh, Marcellus also had a uh, kind of uh, come to Jesus moment uh, himself. Unfortunately, no uh, pun intended. So, <laughs> oh God, oh man. Uh, <laughs> he, so so I think I think from their both uh, experiences uh, that they're having, I think uh, he I think he he'll let. Jules walk away because I think if he doesn't let Jules walk away, Jules knows how to fuck the whole system up. He can, he, he could, he could end Marcellus if he wanted to, like you just said, like if there yeah. was going to be somebody that could take the crown from him, he could, he's just never wanted to. So yeah. like, and you don't want to give him a reason to. And I think Marcellus would also know that. Like, I think Jules is just like that kind of respected upon kind of guy. Like he kind of, you know, I bet, I bet Jules, uh, you know, knew Marcellus like when they were on the same level, you know, like, you know, like at that kind of point. So like they maybe kind of have that kind of um, uh, respect for each other. So I would say that he he would let Jules walk away. I think he Jules is the only person he would let walk away, you know, you know, specifically yeah. because like, you know, he's not scared of you. You know, yeah. you're, yeah. you're not going to be able to do the uh, typical uh, mafia boss thing where it's a ooh, let me blackmail you with this and you know, Kanye to keep working for me this way. Like, he knows that's just not going to work on Jules. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so he's not, you know, I think he, again, uh, uh, risk management, like, hey, hey, he, you got me plenty of wins, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you go into free agency. It's fine. I agree with you. I, I think it's not worth the hassle of poking the bear that is Jules. Just yeah. let him walk his path and he comes back great. He's not going to say shit because you also have stuff on him, but at the same time, exactly. it's, be- it's better to keep him on your side than have him turn on you. Exactly. Nice insight from Mr. Devon Taylor. Well done. Boom. You nailed it on the head. Now, we're talking about somebody, and this is going to be a person and a, and a moment that I will be completely honest and transparent. When the moment happened in the movie the first time I saw it, and I laughed at it then because it was like so bizarre, so wild to see. Never saw it before in my life. And I'm talking about Jimmy. We're talking about the Jimmy relationship and what Jimmy says about signs and storage things that he's not doing and mm-hmm. the amount of N-words he says to Samuel L. Jackson's character, which was shocking. It was just a shocking thing to see happen in a movie because it had never happened before. If it had happened before, it was in a racial context. I'm not saying this isn't, but I do feel that Jimmy, and we'll talk about him later in the year, about him maybe using the good old, I think I've got to get out of jail free card because my wife is black. So that by association allows me to now say this word, which I know for a fact he is not saying that word to his wife or around her. Mm -hmm. She would fuck him up. So I also believe that he knows Jimmy through Obviously, Bonnie. And anyone who doesn't know Bonnie, and we do get to see her in in basically what in like it's it's in a hypothetical flashback because it's not real, <laughs> but he's hypothesizing what it'd be like if she walked in. So she walks in. She is in Reservoir Dogs when 
Chris Penn's character, nice guy Eddie, says he'll call the snake charmer. There's a cutscene in that movie where he actually, they're going to get Bonnie. And this is the Bonnie they're talking about. So she doesn't oh. ever make an appearance there. So this is now the Bonnie that does make an appearance. So she moves in this world of shadows where, like, if they need somebody to... More EMT, not like doctor. She's not, you know, she can take out a bullet probably, but she, you know, she's not performing major surgeries, but she might be able to be there to help somebody get them to a doctor who knows, yada, yada, yada. She's like that in, that mediator in between, uh, go between. So I think that Jules knows Jimmy through, through his wife, through Bonnie. And it's the only reason I can come up with why he stands there, while Jimmy feels <laughs> comfortable to say the shit he says. And no one can see it, but I've got Jimmy right here. It's a very valuable and, and coveted uh, pop funko from my Pulp Fiction collection. But Jimmy, good old Jimmy. Yeah. What do we? Uh, how, how does how does their relationship? Because Jules is up against it, right? I mean, they're in the valley. They're in a place that Marcellus does not have a friendly person. It's not a, a friendly territory for him. Police are circling somewhere, probably close by or in the air and have a chance. They're in a car where the man's head is blown off and the blood is. It's not even inconspicuous. It looks like someone has just exploded a watermelon against the back windshield, like in the back window. You can't even see through the car. It is just a fucking disaster. So Jimmy's got him by the short and curlies, as people like to say. Is that how Jimmy... Is that... Explain to me am, what, what we think this relationship with Jimmy is and, and why he is so powerless in this moment, or I guess lets it slide, because he lets it slide. The only thing I can think of is it, like, I mean, is it implied that Jimmy, I mean, I guess it's kind of implied that Jimmy has money. So he maybe, because, I mean, he's described as Jules's friend, Jimmy, as I'm looking at this uh, plot recap. And yeah, because the the way that he, because, like, Jules just takes me as a person. I'm like, no matter the situation, he wouldn't let anybody say that in his presence that many times if pumpkin had said the n-word to him to get the wallet he'd be dead right <laughs> like exactly like it that many times and him just standing there and like not saying a single thing about it you know so there is some he goes you know i didn't see that sign like you're like what what <laughs> what what do you mean so so jimmy um has to know some bad shit on jewels uh, he might be, maybe he's the only person that knows a certain something about Jules. Cause that like, it, cause it doesn't take me as a, Oh, you're a, such a good friend of mine that I'm going to allow you to say that it, it, it doesn't, cause it doesn't seem that way. You know, like it's not a kind of like, Oh, like, Oh, like I give you a pass for this. Like, no, yeah. it's not, it's not that kind of situation. Uh, this is the, I have no choice, but to let you say it, uh, kind of vibe. Is like because I, I was looking at like the look on his face whenever this exchange was happening, and there wasn't even there wasn't a moment like you didn't there wasn't any anger in his face like there wasn't like a kind of moment where you like see him fighting the urge to like call Jimmy out mm -hmm. on it you know he has this like kind of very relaxed and like kind of like uh, but he has like more more of like a worried look uh, kind of in his face. Uh, and that might just be because of the situation that they're in, like bringing the car and everything and like in him maybe hearing uh, for a moment like that he made a bad decision. Like, hey, maybe mm -hmm. you shouldn't have went to Jimmy's. You probably could have <laughs> figured uh, something else out. But now so it's like so it feels it gives me vibes that like Jimmy is like either did him a huge favor that, you know, Jules still kind of owes him for or he has some shit on Jules. 
That's the only thing to me. It ain't it ain't because we're homeboys uh, or anything like that. Is there any? I mean, he says the N word a lot. The only saving grace, and I'm saying this is going to justify him saying it, is he at least doesn't call Jules that because I think that I think that would have been the line, even though he crossing the line, but that would have been like a line that I don't think even Ju- mm-hmm. Jules would like. I don't give a damn. We're we're about to dispose of two bodies right now. Does the presence of Bonnie that we don't really see does that? Do you think that has any effect on the situation? Does does Bonnie hold any kind of power where we don't want her to come home and see this, or does she know somebody? Is she related to somebody that you know, like? Is there something because Jimmy is scared of Bonnie? He's more scared of Bonnie than saying the N word to Jules, who he knows. I mean, he, they didn't show up with a, a headless man's body in the car for with for nothing. You know what I mean? Like, right. It wasn't like like so. So it's not like Jimmy doesn't have an idea of what Jules may or may not do. And clearly, that there's some kind of simpatico relationship because he wants to help him, but at the same time, it's like if Bonnie comes home and finds this out, I'm fucking a dead man. Like, he is so afraid of Bonnie that he is willing to put his own life on the line. He would rather be shot by Jules than have to deal with Bonnie coming home and find out that he helped in this world or something like that. I mean, I couldn't tell if it was that she has, like, a, like, legit, like, I mean, not to say she wouldn't have a legit power, but, like, uh, is it just, I can't tell if it's either, like, she has you know, crime, crime organization power, or is it like, I was like, or is he like really playing hard the card? Like when guys, you know, just talk about being terrified of their wives, you know? So it's like, kind of like, it's kind of hard to like tell like, yeah, but like, like you said, like if he's willing to say this, you know, two jewels, uh, hard R's on him too. Uh, you know, like then, yeah, maybe, uh, was, was Bonnie deployed? Maybe um, she already had to like clean up a mistake of Jules or something mm. or a mistake of Jules and Jimmy. And maybe that's why or something. I don't know. Mm. Or I just like really can't tell if he's like, you know, just like really playing the dad card of, oh man, I'm so scared of my wife. Like the only per- <laughs> I'm not scared of anybody in this world except for my wife. Like, you know, like I can't, I can't tell. <laughs> I'll call the baddest motherfucker I've ever seen the end. Say the end with in front of him. I don't care. I just wanted that wife to come home and whoop me. <laughs> yeah. It is a, so it, it's a strange. I mean, like I said, I first saw it. It was funny because you'd never heard this happen before. But it's the one moment in the film that does not It doesn't hold seem up. consistent it, with yes. his character. Yeah. Which then leads to the, maybe there's some subtext that we aren't getting. Maybe there's something, you know, I'm not trying to make any excuses for it. I don't want that to come across like I'm like tap dancing. Like, it's okay that he said the N-word. No, I just, the way our characters are reacting, there's something in the periphery that we don't know as the audience based on what we know about social norms. That this gentleman who is a ba- who's not afraid of apparently one of the baddest motherfuckers in L.A., but yet will sit there in a guy's and pretend like do the do the whole shuck and jive kiss ass. Damn, give me some gourmet coffee, shit, whatever. Trying to trying to smooth him over and then allow him to say the n word a thousand times and then just be like, all right, that's what we're gonna have to do. It's like there's something else at play, or it's, at least you know, there's just, there's something we're missing. Why that would be. Well, he was allowed to slide with the whole thing. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think this also just maybe just comes to Tarantino's journey himself in writing these kind of mm. things, mm. Uh, you know, because I was thinking about this too, uh, because like in Reservoir Dogs, like, you know, the way that he uses the word it is frivolous. It's kind of pretty unnecessary. Uh, you know, it's him like kind of doing this, like trying to be over the top to show like how 
truly shitty these guys are and it's like ah, but you didn't need it you know i get mm -hmm. what you're doing mm -hmm. but i get what you're doing but you didn't need it but whatever so and then but then me and you have discussed like obviously the way he uses in django is very important to that film uh you know and i think you know he kind of learns over the years especially in developing a relationship with uh jackson and i feel like maybe this was the turning point where jackson like kind of took him to the side and goes <laughs> okay look my man for your next movie <laughs> If you're going to use the N word, you need to come correct. Like, cause like, yeah, I don't cause I think know. Jackie like, Brown, I don't remember. I don't think there's a white character who says the N word. No, I think no. it's just, it's just Jackie just, and Sam say maybe to maybe him and mm -hmm. um, Chris, uh, Tucker, Chris Tucker character yeah. say it. But other than that, it's, it's not spouted by anybody who is not you know, mm -hmm. of the race that the word is being used by. And until we get to obviously the movies where there's, where slavery has been involved, when we get to Django, slavery has been involved. And mm -hmm. the one behind me, Hateful Eight, when we're post-slavery, yeah. and there's still some tensions because of exactly. two different warring factions on it. So yeah, so this is a it's an it's a, yeah it's a, it's an interesting step in in the journey of uh, Tarantino's ever growing saga of using the N word in films. Uh, it's it's yeah it's so like I feel like it's almost more a tribute to that than the uh like you know inconsistency with the character because you know we don't have any of this like kind of knowledge of their you know of his background or anything like that so um it's just uh we don't really have kind of anywhere else to pull from it so yeah it's uh fascinating it is one subject that we'll be talking about a bit on this uh series in season three because it's the you know, it's a it's a moment in time that does not stick well for this film. It's probably mm -hmm. the most glaring, as you said, even with uh, Reservoir Dogs. And not to give it a pass on Reservoir Dogs, but I, I know what he was trying to go for. But this is a blatant, and it's even him doing it. The, I think that's what even... Yeah, back to back. striking is like, he as the fucking director and writer is actually sitting there doing the actual fucking speaking of this role. So... We're going to dive more into it when we get to Jimmy and we get to the scenes. And yeah, it'll it'll, it'll come up more than once. But uh, we're going to beat this uh, horse to death like it deserves because we, you know, it's something that needs to be brought up. It's on its 30th anniversary, but it needs to be needs to be discussed. It needs to be brought a light to and figure out, you know, hey, I know Sam Jackson's gone to bat for him saying he's not racist. And I don't believe him to be, but I believe in 94 he may have overstepped his boundaries in the, the in this. Yeah. I've I've never thought him to be a racist person. I don't think any I don't think it's ever come from a thing of malice. I think it if anything it is to to be dissective of all these like a uh, kind of Gen X directors. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, look and learning how to, uh, employ things for shock value in, uh, in certain ways and, you know, and in purposeful and tasteful ways. Uh, I think there's just a lot of, I think there's a lot of movies around this time where, you know, not only you said the N word, uh, but just anything else that is like kind of of these, like, you know, extreme shocking things that they were using at the time to like, kind of, you know, be, uh, give that nineties edge, uh, you know, uh, to these kind of films, uh, I think just use of the N word just happened to be the one that he chose, uh, to, to be the thing that is, you know, him, uh, for his, you know, edginess, uh, and, uh, and where that comes from, uh, who's to say, but I, I don't, I've never, I still don't ever see it. Like, um, even in, either of the films like it doesn't feel like it's like a place of like malice the you know 
where how he personally feels it just it's just ooh like i want this character to be so despicable but it is the weirdness that it is him in this and reservoir dogs that is the weird that that, that is the weirdest part i'd say yeah like i said we'll we'll keep dissecting this the rest of the year and we'll uh see if we can come to some kind of anything to just figure out what the fuck <laughs> happened back in 93 when they filmed this film and that scene and the great samuel jackson just stood there and took this on the fucking chin. <laughs> now, we're going to analyze a few more of Jules' motivation. Mostly, his whole through line in this film is the retrieval of this mysterious case all the way to the return of it to its original owner. And I feel like, without him knowing, his journey is babysitting Vincent the entire yeah. way. Yep. Because we go, we retrieve it, and, you know, that great, great opening. We, I mean, the, the opening is amazing with the two of them talking. The whole thing. The whole thing is awesome. The foot fetish, the Rocky Horgan thrown out a window, and all the things they get to talk about. They go in, we, we retrieve the case, and then obviously we come back to what happens because... This is like two, it's like that double cold open almost. We have the cold open of the diner. We get the the titles. We then jump into them in the car. And then after they shoot our gentleman there in for not knowing if Marcellus, what he looked like, if he was a bitch or not. And they retrieve the case. And then we cut. We cut after he's been shot. And we now jump into Vince's story. We don't get back to, to the end when we get to the Bonnie situation. So we return to the scene of the crime. And we see that Jerry Seinfeld lookalike comes out of the bathroom with a hand cannon. And bullets are fired. And... Jules suddenly has this moment of like, holy shit, I should be dead. Meanwhile, Vince is like, this motherfucker, you know, he's more pissed. He's a little bit upset at Marvin to tell him there's another guy in the fucking bathroom. And they got to get the hell out of there. And then Marvin accidentally, intentionally, we will find out as we discuss later on in the year, gets shot in the face. And now, once again, Jules is now put in the position like, I got to take care of this kid, of this guy. We get to Jimmy's place. He eats a bag of shit, as we just talked about. And the wolf shows up. The wolf's the fucking man, about ready to go do stuff. And once again, Vincent fucking acts like a pubescent child because he doesn't like to be people to tell him what to do. Fucking Sam Jack's like, what the fuck? Like you said, to go in the car. Fucking say, you know what, I had enough. You get your fucking bitch ass back in, you clean this fucking skull. Mr. Wolf wants Jules to ride with him. He does not want Vincent to ride with him. He does not trust Vincent with him. It's weird they let him drive his car, but either way. And then we get to the diner and he's having this existential moment where he's really like, he's made his mind up. Like there's no, there's no talking out of it. He is very calm and collected with his decision of what he's going to do. And he's just leaving the life. Meanwhile, Vincent can't handle it. And then we get the whole robbery and he's still calm and he has a great ending. He has a great story arc, but for the most part, he, all his motivations are to get this fucking case back to Marcellus, especially to get shot at. And get the fuck out of this this life before it's too late. And it feels like Vincent is trying everything he can along the way to fucking impede that progress. Your feelings on what Jules is doing from the moment they don't get killed to getting the case returned at the fucking uh, strip club. Well, I think it's a. I think the the case is. Um, it, it, the the two guys had different assignments. You know, like like because like you said, like uh, you know, this whole thing did it need to be a two person thing? maybe not but vincent is the one that's on the level to like kind of handle the the case situation to be close to marcellus so then it's like okay but we know that vincent's a little bit of a wild card so we have to bring in jules to be like you said kind of the babysitter uh even though he is the one that like kind of still takes the lead in Mm -hmm. more situations but you know, be, but the 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 assignment and and the case and everything, uh, a, a lot of the movie is a, a test for Vincent, uh, I think. 
Um, I think Marcellus, obviously, hey, yeah, take my wife out and, you know, let's see if you can, you know, not be weird, not fuck shit up and, you know, <laughs> see, see whatever. So that's a test for him. And so is the, the, the case to a degree is a test for him, but it's not meant to be a test for Jules. It's just a job for Jules. Um, so, so I think they had uh, slightly different assignments for this whole thing, just because again, like based on the levels they're at and Jules's lack of aspiration to be on higher level, you know? So like, uh, for him, it's just like, Hey, just like make sure that Vincent doesn't fuck this up, you know, is, you know, kind of his whole main thing versus for Vincent, it's kind of has a few more different levels, the assignment. How do we think, um... Marcellus, I mean, we know we think that he let him go, but do you think he was surprised that he suddenly was walking away? That Jules was like, you know what? The events of today have showed me that I, uh, my my time in this life is not long if I stay. Yeah, because I because again, I don't think he was expecting it to uh, kind of have this whole thing, and I don't think you know from I think what Marcellus knows of Jules, he's like, oh, like shit, I didn't I didn't realize it, like. This was uh, too crazy for you. I, I feel like you've done this plenty of this already before, um, you know, so like how, how crazy could it have been? So I think he's surprised for sure that like this is like on the, the, the tipping point from like all the kind of shit that um, uh, Jules has probably seen in his history of crime. But again, like, you know, it's just uh, the, the moment is uh, the movie is also kind of caught up in just uh, how certain choices, you know, lead into other you know serendipitous moments and put you in certain situations uh you know and that's you know that's a that's a lot of the film and the difference like between Jules and Vincent is again the accountability aspect you know Vincent you know makes decisions but can't take the accountability for those decisions while Jules can like you know like he knows the the what happens when certain decisions are made and then so that is kind of why he has that you know kind of uh moment of clarity uh as as he says because he like you know like everything like kind of you know falls into place um but you know in a way that um he isn't too surprised by, but at the same time he is, you know? So like, it, it's just, it's just uh, the way that certain choices end up being like, I think he goes into the job feeling, you know, uh, thinking it's one thing, but then uh, he, it turns into, you know, five different things. <laughs> and I do like the fact that we never see this conversation. I like yeah, the fact that no. when we show up at the strip bar and we have the little moment between Vince and Butch, and then he goes back to talk to him. And meanwhile, Jules was gone to take a piss, and that's it. We we don't know anything else from that moment of what happens. We just move on, and Jules is now, or uh, Vincent's out taking Mia, and then we see him again. He's you know backstage with fucking Paul, and they're gonna find out what just happened with Butch. And so I like that it's one of those things that's in the ether. We really don't know anything after he says because in his his ending moment, technically in the film, in a linear fashion, is he says. I got to take a piss. And he walks away. That's it. That, I mean, that's it for him, right? Like, we get a much better ending from him in the actual film, the way it's told. But in, if we went in mm-hmm. timeline, Jules walks off. And when he says, I got to take a piss, he goes to take a piss. We'd never that's see it. or hear from him again. He's just gone. <laughs> He's just gone. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. You were saying something about best intentions. What's the matter? Oh, you were finished. Oh, well, allow me to retort. What does Marcellus Wallace look like? 
What? What country are you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Yes. Then you know what I'm saying. Yes. Describe what Marcellus Wallace looks like. What? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. I double dare you, motherfucker. Say what one more goddamn time. He's black. Go on. He's bald. Does he look like a bitch? What? Does he look like a bitch? No! Then why you try to fuck him like a bitch, Brett? Yes, you did. Yes, you did, Brett. You tried to fuck him. And Marcellus Wallace don't like to be fucked by anybody except Mrs. Wallace. Well, now it's time for us to get our AI's clinical diagnosis of Mr. Jules Winfield. And now, the AI clinical diagnosis. And once again, we turn to AI, and I asked it to clinically diagnose Jules, based on the psychological evaluation it had performed on him earlier. So, without further ado, what was, what was the prompt for this? Uh, you you asked AI, "Hey, I what's this said, fucking guy's problem?" I did. I said, <laughs> uh, "I said AI, you're you're a psychologist. Can you hypoth? Because you have to give like these things like, hypothetically. Because they don't right now. AI is in still a stage where it doesn't like to give information and make you think like this is verbatim. Like this is the the God's truth." So sometimes it's like a little, you're like, all right, relax, you fucking, you're AI, fuck. We know you're going to kill us eventually, you fucking chill the fuck out. Why don't you do what I asked you to do now before you kill me? But I asked AI, I said, hey, pretend you're a psychologist, give me a hypothetical analysis, uh, psychological evaluation based on what you know about this character and the, and the stuff that happens in the film and, and other, you know, properties that you might know them in. And they go ahead and do this. And then at the end, I say, now, same thing, hypothetically, can you give me a clinical diagnosis of this evaluation? And they do. And this is Mr. Jules Winfield's clinical diagnosis. His primary diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder, ASPD. His secondary diagnosis is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. And here is the diagnosis criteria that I was given. Subject exhibits symptoms of antisocial personality disorder. He possesses traits of impulsivity, aggression, and disregard for societal norms. His occupation as a hitman, ease with violence and disregard for the law, align him with some aspects of ASPD. Subject also exhibits symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Jules' exposure to violence and danger has resulted in symptoms of PTSD. His reflective moments after the divine intervention incident and desire for a life change may hint at psychological distress stemming from past traumatic experiences. Subject exhibits symptoms of depersonalization, derealization. Jules' use of humor in tense situations and his calm demeanor during violent encounters could be indicative of depersonalization, a dissociative experience where one feels detached from their emotions or body. Subject also exhibits many symptoms aligned with post-traumatic growth. Following his near-death experience, after surviving the shooting, he began reassessing his priorities and philosophy of life. This traumatic event sparked deep introspection. In summary, Jules Winfield's behavior and attitudes are consistent with the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. However, he has shown a desire to make a meaningful change to his behavior. In order to accomplish this, Mr. Winfield would require psychotherapy focusing on addressing his underlying trauma and facilitating empathy development, cognitive behavioral therapy to help address his maladaptive thought patterns and impulsive behaviors, and incorporation of trauma-focused interventions to address his PTSD symptoms, along with group therapy to help foster a sense of connection and encourage prosocial behavior. Now, when we did last month's Vincent, obviously AI knew that Vincent died, so it just gave us some 
synopsis of what Vincent really was and what the piece of shit he is. But in this one, knowing that Jules has made a change, which was different from Vincent, and he had no sociological changes or psychological changes in his venture throughout this film, Jules actually has a therapeutic possibility to help change him, which I thought was pretty fucking amazing. And you know what? Jules would love therapy. If you listen to the way he, uh, you know, again, his like kind of curious nature and the the way that he, uh, you know, has conversations, he would love therapy. He almost I think gives he himself would... therapy in that last <laughs> speech, right? Like he really goes through a therapeutic moment of realization of like, oh man, I always thought I was a cool, badass motherfucker shepherding people through the valley of darkness. I'm the fucking darkness kind of thing. He, would, know, he thing. would have a great time in therapy. And the 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 antisocial uh, personality disorder is interesting because, because again, like I, I mentioned, earlier he's able to turn things on and off he's able mm-hmm. to keep his mask on a little bit easier and maybe it's because of some of this uh era of detachment so yeah. so maybe that's the reason i can't keep my mask on because <laughs> i don't have antisocial personal disorder um but it, there's also a moment that um between them like whenever there are uh, when vincent and jules are you know rolling up to the apartment uh and there's a point where jules says all right get into character mm-hmm. and when yes. he says that when they're doing their their thing their you know their whole shit they kind of flip they they flip in a way because then once they're in there he's the one that is the wild card he's the one one minute he's calm one minute he's yelling mm-hmm. uh one minute he's you know he's pointing the gun around and vincent's just walking around in the background <laughs> quietly being the stoic one and it's like when we know that that's not the case. So it's like they they like flip. So even so he has even a layered detachment like when he's, you know, when he is mm-hmm. on the job versus, you know, when he's not. So I find that fascinating. You know, this has been a fun part of these this journey I'm doing this year. And that is the breaking down of these characters in a psychological manner to find out what has been making them tick. And it's, it's a lot of fun. You read the Bible, Greg? Yes. Oh, there's this passage I got memorized. Sort of fits this occasion. Ezekiel 25, 17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. But let's talk about Mr. Jackson's portrayal of Jules Winfield as we close out our little character study. Now, I start by telling you what other actors were actually considered for this role. Once again, the two main characters of Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield were not originally written Mm -hmm. for these gentlemen. The number one person that Tarantino wanted to play this role was Lawrence Fishburne. However, Sam was a strong second, as was Eddie Murphy. He also wanted Charles Dutton, Michael Beach, and this is on, I was able to find the copy of his notes if we wanted, and on his list of who we wanted, it also said, unknown, 
if necessary, but no rappers. And to help people understand, at the time that this film was being made, gangster rappers were starting to be pulled into films to give certain films a legitimacy, Ice Cube being one of them. To start with, Tupac was being pulled into this. So they started to pull some very popular gangster rappers into these urban dramas or urban crime stories to give a bit of legitimacy to the characters they were playing. So Tarantino was like, look, I don't, I don't want a rapper. I want an actor. So, and look, I'm glad he got Sam. Like the two people he earmarked to be this was Denzel Washington, because you haven't heard the episode yet. But Denzel was his number one choice for Vincent Vega, and Lawrence Fishburne was his second, was his number one choice to play Jules Winfield. Would have been a completely mm. different fucking movie. Completely different fucking movie. And I, and we I, spoke in the last one, like it couldn't have been Denzel and Samuel Jackson because the power and testosterone between those two gentlemen on screen at the same time, which they have, I don't think they've been, would have actually caused a black hole and rip in time and space. And damn, all the have world, they not been in a movie together? I don't think they've been in a movie together. Whoa. You, you can't. I think, I think there's a physics that you're not allowed to have Denzel Washington and Sam Jackson <laughs> on screen together playing. This playing a powerful character, it would suck all of time and space inward. We would just implode on ourselves. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think we could have handled it. I don't think Tarantino could handle directing no. both of them together. And who's the same motherfucker like, more? You know what I mean? Like who gets? Like <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think it's possible. And but I think there was. It, it's again like on just one of those perfect casting things that just worked out so well because like it, it, like it like it it just feels so necessary. Like mm-hmm. it, like Travolta feels necessary. Uh, I love Larry Fish. Uh, oh, I don't think he could. I don't think. But I, I still don't even know if he could do this. Uh, do Jules like it? No. Uh, maybe maybe Denzel could have done Jules. It would have been. It would have been probably. More along yeah, his yeah. his uh, training day character persona, yep. he, he probably would have probably brought him around. Yeah, yeah, Denzel Denzel probably could have done Jules, but it's just it's it's a perfect alchemy be, mm-hmm. between them, uh, you know, uh, of having the the balance of it. And Sam Jackson, I think, has just like I, I was kind of reminded of it, and like in is like you know most iconic scenes is like he has just one of the best voices of all mm. time. Uh, it's not only like he has a, you know, not, not even the way his voice sounds. It's like the way he like weaponizes like his volume and like, you know, when he's, you know, being calm and quiet and steady and then he explodes and like has this, like, you know, like he, 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 he sounds better when he's shouting than when he's talking honestly. And like, who can you say (laughs) that for? Uh, he has such a great cadence in the way he speaks as well. Um, so like just the way that Sam Jackson over his entire career is just like the way he uses his voice is very fascinating to me. Uh, and I think that's like kind of what really, you know, makes his monologues pop. It's why he's the most quotable character, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the film. Uh, and a lot of that comes from just like the his voice and the way he speaks. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Sam originally read from Mr. Orange's undercover handler on Reservoir Dogs. Obviously, he did not get it. But he ran into QT at a screening of the film. And that's where he was first told by Quentin that he had written a part for him in his next movie. However... Paul Calderon, who plays the bar back at the strip club and then basically kind of fills in, it feels like, for Sam when Sam's gone because he and Vincent are the guys storming down the hallway to come see Marcellus after they find out Butch has jumped the coop and betrayed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Paul Calderon did such a good job in his audition for the part that Sam was brought back in a second time where he nailed it and the rest is fucking cinematic history. And thankfully, he did because I know that Leonardo DiCaprio has kind of supplanted this gentleman now as Martin Scorsese's main go-to. But back in the day, especially when... 
these moves were being made, De Niro was Scorsese's go-to guy. Sam is Tarantino's go-to guy. Sam, I don't want to say it's his muse, but no one, no one speaks dialogue of Tarantino's like Samuel Jackson does. Samuel Jackson is mm. the fucking man. And I have no doubt in my mind he will be in the final film for whatever reason it might be. Even if it's just some dude in the theater who gets a chance to yell, motherfucker, sit down, or something like that. Samuel Jackson is going to be in that final film because he has to be. Because he brings Tarantino's dialogue to fucking life. I get more joy listening to him play the characters and him talking than Anyone else who's been on the screen in a Tarantino film? I 100% agree. Like, I think a, a Hateful Eight's another testament to like Samuel Jackson being just like one of the best people to deliver Tarantino dialogue. Mm-hmm. But in uh, this one too, and and not only that, I mean, again, like you know, as we were kind of talking earlier, I think Samuel Jackson is very key in. Tarantino's development yes. as a yes. as a writer and director and the way that he approaches certain characters I think if he did not work if Sam Jackson does not come on this I don't know if you know uh even Django is as good as it is because I don't know if without having that perspective and working with Sam Jackson I don't think he learns a lot of these uh kind of lessons he's uh learned about writing uh characters of color and I think Sam Jackson is very instrumental to that so like uh, uh amuse in that way even mm-hmm. uh, I, I would say I mean, he's instrumental in this. He's instrumental in Jackie Brown, Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight. I mean, when he pops up in Kill Bill Volume 2, which you'll get a chance to talk about later uh, this year, you're like, fuck yeah. When he does a little voiceover in Glorious Bastards, you're like, fuck yeah. Like, whenever he is on screen, it's an exciting moment as a Tarantino fan. And I don't know that Tarantino is the person he is without Samuel Jackson. Samuel Jackson... There's something about when he's in the films, it just elevates the material. I think the two of them go together. Now, I'm not saying that Tarantino's talents would not have been there, but when you get to have that actor, just like Scorsese, you take away De Niro and you start just moving in other Italian actors, you go, okay, maybe, but De Niro helps to really push who Scorsese is. Scorsese's got talent, but you need that person to bring that on screen like i mean there are many movies that have been written and because they have bad directors or bad actors in it what was on the page what goes to the screen is not the fucking same mm-hmm. i've read a couple of scripts and go how did this fucking movie fail like this is really well written then you go well too many hands in the pot or not a, not a good actor so sam jackson is the guy who i think helped put the final stamp of tarantino stardom to the rise and obviously this they kind of help launch each other right because this movie really launches tarantino and like you said sam jackson goes from being a, a guy who gets extra roles in some movies but he's not getting the real push and then all of a sudden next thing you know he and bruce willis are starring in die hard with a vengeance and that's it and then he's and then fucking mace windu he told george lucas hey I want my lightsaber to be fucking purple like he's fucking Prince. And guess what fucking happened? He got it. Exactly, man. right? Like, yeah, it's a fucking purple lightsaber. So, enough said. This is who he is, and this is what we got, and this is really his his rise. And for me, so I'm going to ask you, this is my favorite of his. Is it his best role? Maybe not. But for me, it's his, my favorite because he embodies this character like no. Like you said, I just think of the Jerry Curl. I think of everything he brings. I wonder if the Jerry Curl had anything to do with his time working just a couple years earlier on um, Coming to America with the whole Soul Glow thing. I wonder if he just kind of saw that look and was like, because that wasn't the hair he was supposed to have. He went and got the Jerry Curl wig. And when he came on set, they're like, that's the fucking hair. I mean, this is how powerful Samuel Jackson is. He gets his own hairdo for that. And he also is the one who creates his look for Jackie Brown for Ordell. So the man earned quick cachet with Mr. Tarantino. Mr. Taylor, where does this performance rank for you in Mr. Jackson's body of work? Which is 
unbelievable since the early 90s. Yeah, the amount of scrolling I just had to do, I was like, man, I was like, let me like really take a look. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I mean, he's done literally hundreds of movies. I mean, it is, it's definitely up there. Uh, it, it's, it's probably, uh, I would say, I would say top, top 10, maybe of, okay. um, of, uh, of his career. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's tough because, you know, like one, uh, he's not in this movie as much as you think he is. Uh, he's only got 39 minutes of screen time, which is kind of shockingly low. But um, as far as it being like emblematic of a Samuel L. Jackson performance, um, it is kind of hard to argue. It, uh, it's tough, um, but uh, but it, it's definitely up there because again, like this is, uh, you know, it's he, he's more than just like kind of a quote machine um, because I think like you know like it's kind of easy to see him in that way, but then breaking down uh, kind of some of the nuances and implied mythology behind Jules uh, in tandem with that, it makes it a. Uh, I mean, such an explosive performance uh, from Jackson, and uh, so so I think this is the most Sam Jackson performance, if that makes sense. Hmm. But okay. maybe yeah. not his best. Perfectly fair. Perfectly fucking fair. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. And now we close out our episode with a couple questions, and I added one in that you don't know about, which I'm excited for oh. you to hear. Number one. What was your favorite line of dialogue? And I know this is like asking someone to pick their favorite pet, their favorite child, because he says so many choice moments in this film. But what is your favorite moment of dialogue from Mr. Jules Winfield? So, uh, yeah, like, I mean, obviously during that, that first confrontation, like the, the, the job, there's so many, but you know, that's where all the iconic ones come from. We all know those ones. Uh, so I was, so I was on the hunt for, for something a little more interesting. Um, and my one that I, uh, really, that really stuck out to me was, uh, when they're having their conversation in the diner at the end and, uh, you know, we, again, we've kind of seen the way that these two bicker and banter, the way that they uh, conversate and like challenge each other and ask each other questions. I, I forget what they were talking about exactly, but uh, he says, he says, if my answers frighten you, Vincent, you should cease asking scary questions. And I'm just going to go around telling <laughs> a lot of people that because, uh, uh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, in today's day and age, like people love to get upset about things that, yes. you know, they kind of seek out for themselves and that's like well, well well why why'd you ask you know you know so it was like uh, i i thought that was a, a really clever line from him that's a great that's a great one number two now what was your favorite moment or scene involving mr jules winfield yeah uh, i i it, it was the the scene that we already kind of uh, broke down a, a good minute on it is again it's uh, the it's the clean the car scene for me like i think there's a lot of really great conversations uh between them um you know that like kind of inform them uh I, I even like um there is also I really like the the moment that um you know they're they're talking about the 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 cheeseburgers in the car and the royale with cheese and everything. I love how he like brings that into the uh into the confrontation. I I like that that's a interesting like little just a little thing about his character that he's like, oh, like something that was like kind of on our brain already. Let me incorporate this into our, you know, kind of performance that they like kind of do with this whole with this whole killing. And again, it like tips to my point earlier, how they like kind of switch their role. So like him even quoting, you know, something that he just learned from uh, Vincent is like a little interesting little tick to his character. Number three. Now, where does this character of Jules Winfield rank for you in the pantheon of the vast Tarantinoverse Tarantino characters? Mm, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, it's in the top 10. It's in the top 10. But for my personal 
for my personal rankings. Uh, I can't really put him any higher than that because I don't even know if this is my favorite Sam Jackson Tarantino role. That's fair. Uh, Because I love him in Hateful Eight. I love him in Django. Um, You know, and he gets a little bit more uh, opportunities to shine in those, honestly. Um, But uh, again, for this being such a emblematic character of the Tarantino verse, um, you know, I will respectfully still have him up in the top 10 of Tarantino characters. Number four. And finally, the brand new one that is going to be sweeping the nation. If you had to write Jules Winfield's dating bio, what would you say? <laughs> oh, his dating bio. Is he just the, the the Bible verse in it? Does he keep it simple like that? Because, he, you know, he knows it so well. He can't be bothered to write anything interesting. Uh, or does he take um, his, uh, the quote from his wallet, just bad motherfucker? <laughs> so is that like looking for be cool bitches? <laughs> yeah, because I don't, I don't think he's, he's not put in on in his dating bio like what he's looking for. Uh, no, he's, he's just going to stay, you know, stay, stay his business and then that's that, you know. Or he probably even seems like a no, no bio guy and just thinks he's enough. <laughs> There's a picture of that Jerry curls enough to get the ladies a swoon. No, that's a that's a rule for me on uh on the dating apps. I don't I don't uh swipe right on people with no bios. Put some work in, okay? Just putting your face there ain't doing it for me. Put a, put some work in. I'm so curious, Samuel, like what your first impression was of Quentin Tarantino on True Romance. Like, was he wandering around with a script, actually, talking to everybody? Actually, I didn't see him. Oh, really? Yeah, no. It wasn't until Pulp Fiction until then that you would actually. Um, the first time I met Quentin was when I auditioned for Reservoir Dogs. Mm. He was one of the people that was reading with me. He and Lawrence Bender, the producer. I was supposed to rehearse. I was. I was, I was supposed to audition with Harvey Cattell and Tim Roth, but you know these two guys showed up, and I was like, "Who the hell are these guys?" Plus, they were. <laughs> plus, they were awful. You know, I was doing the audition. They were. <laughs> Awful. I left that audition like, oh, I know I'm not getting this job. These dudes sucked. Who the fuck was that? You know, it's like, oh, I had no idea who they were. And then when I um uh went to Sundance that year, for some reason I was at Sundance. I I I I went to the first screening of Reservoir Dogs, and there he was. And I was like, oh, that's that dude that was in the audition. <laughs> So I went up to him like I didn't I didn't realize you were the director blah 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 and he's like how you like the guy who got your part I was like what your movie would have been much better with me in it you know that's <laughs> you know, that guy's fine he's a soap opera actor you should have hired me you know he's like don't worry I'm writing something for you I was like what you you remember me yeah 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 and he gone and then wow. you know a month or so later I was somewhere else and Pulp Fiction showed up in the mail so that was that. Wow, what was it like to get that in the mail? Seriously, I mean, I was doing another movie. I was, on, I was, I was, I was doing some movie in West Virginia, and this package arrived. It was a brown paper package with a little sticker on the back with a gangster on it that said, "If you show this to anybody, we'll kill you." And I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> and I opened it up, and Pulp Fiction by Quentin Tarantino. I was like, "Oh, okay." Boom. I started reading. He said, oh. Jules, okay. Uh, wow, wow, this is, wow, this is dope. This is amazing. I got to the end of it and was like, whoa, okay. <sighs> nah, I couldn't have been that good. Turn it back over, read it again immediately. It was like, wow, if if 
Miramax lets us shoot what's here on this page. This is going to be crazy good. Now, everybody's not going to like it, but my friends will. And I will. I can't wait to see myself in this thing. And, you know, the rest is what it is. Even though there's stuff in that script that's not on screen. <laughs> What? Like what? What was yeah. the most shocking thing that didn't that was that went too far? We can't I don't do think that. it went too far. It was just one of those things where, well, it's like in the in the diner when Tim Roth asked me to open up that briefcase. When I do it, I shoot him in the face and I shoot Honey Bunny off that counter. And when I open my eyes, they're still there because that's what I would have done before I transitioned. <laughs> And that's a wrap on this edition of Character Study. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Devon Taylor, co-host of the Spectre Cinema Club, for joining me today. I had an absolute blessed discussing the intricacies of what makes Jules Winfield tick. Now, you can find the link to the Spectre Cinema Club podcast and the show's socials in our show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all of our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the Church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again next week for our newest series, Inglorious Blue Balls, as myself and my co-host, Sean Wheeler, take a look at one of Tarantino's early 2000 announcements, an untitled medieval movie that apparently would have starred Helen Mirren. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.